Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. My name is Marty, recovering sexaholic. I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing but I'm just going to go with what they told me to talk about. Um, so I'm in the process of some dental work, so if you don't understand what I'm saying, please let me know. Um, Will sent me an email asking what I wanted the topic, or what I thought it was supposed to be recovery from lust, and he asked me what the title of it would be. His suggestion was how I kicked Evil Knievel's ass and came out a sober alcoholic sexaholic, which is a true part of my story, and I suggested how do we... So I thought about it, and I thought, well, let's talk about getting to the root cause of lust. And I want to say that this is my, what happened to me, and it was my experience, and I don't ever want to step in anywhere without the humility of this is just my own experience. It may or may not be yours, but it's what occurred to me in essay recovery. So, um, <clears throat> so one of the things I've learned in the last few years in my sobriety and my recovery is that I... My first step issues are all second and third step issues. And I didn't know that when I got sober, because everything was a first step issue. You know, when you're as batshit crazy as I was, everything was a crisis and kind of swirled around me. And as my life has got, as I've stopped acting out physically, my emotional and spiritual sobriety has come, and I've realized that my powerlessness is really about where is my dependence today? And my dependence, a lot of times, is in me. And I came, that story about Eva Kimball is very true. I came from an alcoholic home in Montana. And uh, Elliot and Priscilla have heard me say this before in Montana. I used to say, when I speak in AA, I say, uh, I'm from Montana where the men are men and the sheep are nervous. (laughs) I've done that in here before, and I've got more than one time when a guy's raised his hand. And and so... But I, uh, so I grew up in a really tough part of Montana, and uh, I've had five guys in the program who know have known me the past twenty to thirty years in my recovered life. When they've seen me without my tooth, and their first response was, "Did did you get into a fight?" Uh, one of the guys in the Saturday morning meeting said, "What happened?" I said, "I had to get my tooth extracted." I had a, and he said, "Was it a quick extraction or was it a planned, appointed extraction?" <laughs> And I hope at some point in my life that I don't, I don't always have that energy of that roughness, toughness that I grew up in. But I did get into a fight with Evil Knievel, and I did kick his ass. He wasn't in his prime, but I was really proud of that when I walked in here, you know. <laughs> and it's a lot like bragging about being the star second baseman for this Montana youth prison facility, which I was, right? And I, those are the things that I, I was... I was also the starting point guard, right? Um, but those aren't the things I'm really proud of, but they're also a very big part of my story and a very big part about of my relentless pursuit of this path. And on my stone won't say, here's a guy that, that never made it in the music business and ended up an engineer. It'll say, here's a guy that was relentless about his pursuit of the truth because that's what I want on my tombstone because that has been my moniker. So with that, I want you to tell you this last month of my life, my family has taken about six shots to the bow. And it started with this tooth, which was really this whole summation story about my life growing up out in Montana. And I've been really weary. And I realized it wasn't one thing. It was the cumulative effect of six things, and I didn't have time to recover. And that was my life acting out. I never had time to recover. And I'm I'm old, and I'm circling the drain, and I'm sensitive, and I don't like pain. And I was young and sensitive, and I didn't like pain back then, and I had, I had to go find a place to get rid of this pain. So 
I ended up in these rooms, um, the star second baseman of the San Quentin Quail, right? That's kind of my story in a nutshell. But So I just want you to know I'm very emotional, really raw, and I'm very uh, weary. It's been a really, really uh, sick shots to the bow of emotional uh, turmoil. And I'm on, today's my 30th day without rage and having surrendered my rage which is the first time in my life I've gone 30 days without a rage attack. So I'm withdrawing. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> so hopefully no more of these, okay? Um, so I'm Ron. I just want to let you know that up front. So when I got in here, and one of the things that I also want to say that's really important to me, and I, I forgive my arrogance if I'm in meetings, and I, I, get, I get frustrated and I get angry because I get so effing tired of hearing about lust and this and that and the physical and I get angry at it because it, 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 it was never my problem I thought sex was my problem and I came in here and it wasn't, it was lust and then I started addressing the lust and then I got to me, for me, the, the root cause of why I acted out in the first place I did not come out of that womb a sex addict I did not come out of that womb an alcoholic I came out of that womb genetically predispositioned for alcoholism, sex addiction, gambling, throw any addiction you want in there. What happened in the environment I grew up in, it was a perfect container of gasoline. And I sought comfort. Whiskey quelched my rage, and women and sex brought me the comfort I never had. That's my story. And so when I stumbled in here... Um, I was riddled in shame. I had been in recovery from alcoholism for a while. I had been in uh, Al-Anon and adult children of alcoholics for a number of years. And I came in here um, because I got a thousand free hours of AOL, and I can still hear that ding, ding, ding. You guys, I didn't trigger anybody, but that was AOLs. And within three days, I got on that website, on a website to look to see where my alma mater was playing football that year. My wife came in the room six hours later. I was naked, masturbating on the, on the, with the computer rolling and a phone in my hand. And she said, what are you doing? I said, nothing. <laughs> I got nothing. What are you doing? You know? And so it rolls on down. You know? and, and, uh, and I was working with, uh, I was working with Wilson at the time. And uh, Wilson to me at that time, and he's like a brother to me today. I couldn't stand the guy when I met him, and he couldn't stand me, and we're like that today. We are. We're like that because I've come to grow to love myself, and I can love him. This idea that I love you to love me has not been my living, spiritual, sober experience. And he, he'd be comfortable, I'm hoping, and i tell this story. We were working together, and he was so rigid about anything. He'd look at a tree and go, oh, Jesus. He'd call his sponsor go, I just sexualized a tree. And I'm like, dude, look, pick the, are we raking leaves or what are we doing? <laughs> you know? And I didn't want that. I didn't want to be that rigid. And I came in, and I expected these old, shriveled up, angry men. And I found some of them, but mostly, <laughs> I can't help myself, Priscilla. But mostly what I found were guys that uh, could relate to me. And we were in a circle at the Blue Portable. And this was back when you had to, you had, in it, back when we had to walk uphill in snow both ways to get to me. You guys got it so fucking easy, I can't even tell you. Don't they? They got, uh, Jim, Priscilla. We had to, t- we had to, s- freezing rain, yes. We had to admit what, we had to say my forms of acting out were this. And I didn't even know what lust was. All I knew is I liked sex and I liked masturbation and I didn't just like it, I needed it and I loved it. And Wilson and I were working and I said, man, I was out of town the other day on a job and I saw this group of high school girls pulled up and I was in my early to mid 20s at the time and I said, and they got out of that car and I said, and this feeling just took my body over. And we were in this little van of his and he looked at me and he goes, well, we call that lust. (laughs) And it was like, you get a knock, and it was like I had to identify what the problem was first. And the part that I don't want, that I really want to pray for the change in my sobriety in this room is to assume that you all know what the hell the problem is. Because I didn't. And so I went to work on, on the lust, and what I was really going to work on was my shame about having lust. And this program, and I really believe this. Um, the reason it's hard to get and stay sober in here is I believe my sexuality and my spirituality are like a rope. And they are like a steel rope. And they are so entwined and I can't separate them. So if I'm feeling shame about who I am, how in the hell am I not going to feel shame about my own sexuality and sex? 
right? And I just walked right out there in the middle of that trap. And I'll never forget at the old second pres meeting, um, uh, we were sitting there and Harvey would used to go and do these newcomer. He still does, but he did this newcomer. Man, we used to have to get specific and graphic about what our forms of sexual acting out with. You guys have no idea how good you got it with Harvey today. He would just say, what is it? And you'd go, well, you know, kind of, in me, I couldn't even say the word masturbation. I said, well, I kind of jerk off, and people's hands were flying up, you know. And I was like, I thought, I, I need to get sober in Montana where people talk like this. It wasn't true. And so one day after a meeting, there, you guys remember Angry Steve, tall, blonde-haired, really good-looking kid, and just, he'd come in a meeting, and he's just, Fucking, he's just mad, and I, and he, I was, he was no more angrier than I was, but he, you know, I could point at him, and I remember Harvey looked at me and said, "I want you to tell him me." I had about six months of sobriety, which for back then was an eternity. He said, "I want you to tell him what you were thinking about when you were masturbating." And I was like, "Whoa, dude, that woo!" And I just stood there and I watched that guy with his head hung down and the shame come out of him, and I thought, "There it is, right there, that's it." And so that was my introduction into this program, but identifying it was a first step. And then what happened is I went to work on, on stopping the behaviors of lust. And I had to call and check in and say, I'm getting on the computer to look at some work. I'm checking. I'll get on at 12, and I'll get off. And uh, Rack Clark, some of you guys remember him, he said, what time are you getting off? I said, I don't know, 2, 2, 30. He said, I don't need to know the exact time you're getting off. And I said, why? And he said, because my disease lives in ambiguity. It lives in ambiguity. And that extra 15 minutes, give or take, well, is gonna, could make or break you. And I'd say, 12, 17. I said, well, what happens if I have to go to 2.30? He says, you call me back. And I would get on the road, and I'd go up to the suspect part of town, and acting out with prostitutes was never my thing. And all of a sudden, when I was getting sober, I think my addict thought, it's over. I'm going for I'm going for bust now, and he started coming out of the woodwork, and I started cruising prostitutes. And he said, "Where are you going?" This is before cell phones. And I said, "Well, what if I, what if I'm in the truck and it's 12:30?" He said, "You pull over and call." I said, "What do you mean pull? I don't have." A, he goes, "Go to the bank and get a pocket full of change so you can call me." That's what I had to do. And what happened when I started doing that is like my sponsor Barry. Sook says, he's pushing 50 years sober, knows it all, but he would say, someday, Marty, your word's going to mean something, right? And so what would happen was I had to start telling you people the truth about me. In order for Rack to know that I was going to a suspect part of town, he had to know that that was a trigger for me, right? And when Steve threw that piece of shame out there and I didn't say anything or carve it out, all of a sudden I started to get to the solution, which was... I, you got to get to know who I am. And so that was the next phase. And how I got to know who I am, and this is the honest truth about me. If Elliot was my sponsor, I called Justin, I called Priscilla, I called Jim, and I called Brantley. I called them beforehand because I was so full of shame I couldn't call Elliot and say, this is what I did. And what happened was is I developed relationships with these men and these women that became this solid foundation of my recovery that I could tell them exactly what was going on. And there was one of them. His name was Matt. And he and I were like this. And our wives were the same. We were musicians. We were songwriters. And we were brothers. And I would call him and say, you're not going to believe what I just saw. Blah. Before I came here, I spent four hours this morning with a guy that you guys might remember, Philip Tall, handsome guy. I spent four hours with him today. He was one of those guys that I could tell my truth to. So I had to start being honest with, my, with you and myself and telling you, well, this is what I, what I got going on. And that was nothing for me to tell you that I was attracted to a big-breasted woman because that's where I came from, right? And that's how I slowly, slowly started to get into, into started to get sober. And then I went to a movie with a couple of those guys, and we went to this movie called How to, uh, Cider House Rules. And we were watching that, and I was driving home. I got on the interstate, and I got about three-quarters of the way home, and just like this, I just... You don't cry in Montana, right? I, mean, I played high school and college football, and my hands are broke up from the bar fights. My, my therapist said, You're, what you were was a recreational bar fighter. 
I've never heard that term, uh, recreational. He said, well, you enjoyed it? I said, yeah, it was fun shit, man. You know? And I got home, and I called, and I don't know what it was about that movie. I'd have to watch it sometime, and I, I told my wife, I said, I... I was I was sexually abused and she knew about or I said I was sexually abused and I had an incestuous relationship with my sister and I cried like a baby and I thought this marriage is over as I'm telling her I'm going this marriage is over and she looked at me and she said my god the pain you had to have been in she goes I'm so sorry that happened there it went again and I went into a two week depression and my friend Matt called and he said Dude, I see this guy named, I I want to mention the therapist's name, and he said, I've been been going to him for two years, and he said, I really think it would help you. And like a good alcoholic, I had contempt prior to investigation. I thought, that ain't going to work for me. (laughs) I know what I'm doing. And eventually I started doing this work. And I will tell you, there are three legs. You talk about the three legs of the program. The fourth leg of my stools is experiential healing and experiential therapy work. And here's why. Those steps have taken care of my resentment, they've taken care of my fear, and they've taken care of my rage. They have done nothing for my grief and my loss and the hurt that I experienced growing up. They've done somewhat, and I've been able to clean up amends, and I begin to go in and and carve out the cavern. I begin to go in and find out what was behind that act, and why is it that I, at 8, 12, 8, 9, 10 years old, would would hold curtains open of babysitters hoping to catch them naked. And that was kind of PG-13 compared to the shit that happened when I got into as an adult, you know. What happened? Why? You know, and, and my sponsors would always say, it doesn't matter why the donkey got in the ditch. The matter is he's a ditch, get him out. That's not my living sober experience. That may be Elliot's, but it's not mine. And it's okay. My experience was I had to go back and find out why. <clears throat> Relentless pursuit of the truth and I got in there and I started digging the shit up and I started realizing I didn't drink and act out sexually over what I did. I drank and acted out sexually over what I didn't do. And that was speak up when I needed to speak up, honestly, from the heart. It meant standing up for a guy that was getting bullied. It meant saying no. It meant telling you the truth about who I was and what I didn't want to do, you know. And so that part of my sobriety really started kicking in, and then I really dug in. And, and all of a sudden, all the sexual stuff out here started to just disappear. And I started getting some wealth and some health emotionally and spiritually. And I thought I was getting really grown up emotionally. And I went home to my wife, and I said, God, I said, I, you know, and I was bragging on myself. You know how we do, you know. And she just wants me to do the damn dishes. You know, I'm like, you know, baby. <laughs> Well, we got married, you know, and she's like, could you just vacuum and do the dishes? We can talk about that, you know. And, and she, I said, I feel like I'm about 18 emotionally. And she said, I'd give you about 16. <laughs> and that was about four solid years of experiential therapy. And I'm talking about what I call snot and grief work, where that shit is uncontrollable. And my, I heave so hard in some of those, I would crack ribs from the crying, right? Continue to go into essay, continue to go into essay. Work the st- Worked steps. One of the beautiful things about this program I've never experienced anywhere else is our first step when we give it away to the group. There's nowhere, and it gives me goosebumps, where I walk in and I hear a man or a woman say, this is who I am in my disease, and we embrace that shit, man. We just grab a hold of you, and I'll never forget the feeling when I did that, and I, was, I wanted to get through that shit as quickly as I could. And I looked up. And there wasn't anybody that was turning their head. Nobody ran out of the room. And the shame, it just hung out there, man. And I walked out of that room and I felt so a part of you all. I had to tell you who I was. And there were men and women in there that were cross-dressers. My first sponsor was a cross-dresser. There were guys and men and women that were, had same-sex issues. And it didn't matter. I didn't give a shit about it. I just wanted to know who you were, right? So... I did that for many years in about seven to eight years sober. And this is where it gets good, man. God, this is where it got so good for me. I woke up and I was angry in these, in these rooms. And I had a sponsor. He was my true blue sponsor. This guy knew everything about me. And he said, I was angry because all I heard about was the first step, do the essay salute and this and that. And I was like, come on, y'all. Come on. Come on. The old timers, they'd look at me and say, no, it's about lust recovery. 
And he said to me, he said, isn't it ironic that you're angry at them for not doing what you need to do for yourself? I said, I don't know, fuck you, I'll do, you know, the usual Marty. And this guy, when he walked into this room, I was sitting there in a cowboy hat and wranglers and cowboy boots and had a black eye and a broken knuckle. And he walked in in leather sandal shoes, a leather jacket, four earrings, and an artist cap and a leather jacket and sat down. And I thought, I want what that guy has. Now, how that worked out, I have no idea, right? I was an angry, bar-fighting, jock cowboy from Montana. He was a sober, spiritually sensitive artist. Who I am today is a sober, spiritually sensitive artist. That's the man I am, right? So when I get up to the pearlies, if I get there, I'm going to knock on the door and I go, let these other guys see i got to have a couple conversations with you. Why did you put me in Wolf Creek, Montana? That's one of my questions, you know. Well, this may be it. This may be the reason, right? So when he died, I... uh, I was terrified because nobody knew me like he did and nobody gave me guidance. And I want to tell you people, that man never told me to do anything one time. And I don't even know how long he was my sponsor for 10 or 15 years. He never said do this. Never. And I stayed sober. And when he died, I was terrified. I didn't know what I was going to do, who was going to take this guy's place. And I realized it was time for me to step out into my own spiritual life as a man. He was my spiritual father. And I, I... tagged into this guy that I couldn't stand that's one of my sponsors now that's 50 years sober and we were standing outside of an Al-Anon meeting that was the other part of my story that I want to say is that you know I was the drunk and the addict that I was having trouble living with there was no more alcoholism in my life I was the guy I was having trouble living with so I started going to Al-Anon and man when you go to an Al-Anon meeting raise your hand if you've ever been to one of them don't you just want to stand up and go, drink, God damn it, drink. <laughs> drink, Jesus, you're miserable. Drink, somebody fucking drink. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have never stopped going to Al-Anon. You can smell an alcoholic in an Al-Anon meeting like I can smell dog crap when I step in it. You can smell us in there. So... I started going to Al-Anon, and I was standing outside of an Al-Anon meeting, and this guy came up to me and said, How long have you been sober, kid? And I, you guys have all heard this shit a hundred times, and I said, About 16 years. And he said, It's about right. And he goes, Tell me what's wrong with this program. He was talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I literally went, looked up. That's what I did. I said, Barry. He said, Tell me, what, tell me, tell me one thing. And I said, That part in that big book about, about my legs will never grow back, I said, It's bullshit. And he goes, I can't hear you. And I said, it's bullshit. He goes, is it your living sober experience? And I said, yeah. And then he said, what's another one? I said, that part about anger is a dubious luxury I can't afford. I said, I've, he goes, be careful. (laughs) Be careful. I said, unexpressed anger is a dubious luxury that I can't afford. My problem was not uh, that I'm angry. My technique is way off, right? <coughs> one of my sponsors said one time, I'd, this was stone cold sober, eight, 10 years in SA, not a, or probably 20 years in A, went up and threw my brother around his house. He said something wildly inappropriate to my life and wife, and he was way out of line. And I was sharing at my Alan on meeting, and this guy said, dude, your prince, spiritual principles are dead on. Your technique is way the hell off. Right? That's my life. That's what I do, okay? So I started this relationship with Barry. And he said, I want you to tell me everything you do in this program that gives you safety and comfort. And remember, I came from a crazy-ass alcoholic home. Crazy. Right? I was 10 years old driving my dad home drunk in the middle of a blind and snowstorm. That was normal to me. No shit driving home 10 years old, playing in a bar in a honky-tonk, playing drums, falling asleep at 2 o'clock in the morning, honky-tonks all across Montana, then loading shit up in suburban. My brother and I would fight over who would drive, not who wanted to drive, but who drove last because we were so tired of driving, right, at 10, 11, 12 years old. You get a little picture there. So this program saved my life, and it was comfortable, and it was safe, and it was the first time in my life that I was comfortable in my own skin, Right? But I knew there was something more, and I brought all this shit. It was under an umbrella, and I said, Barry said, what is it? And I said, "Um, I work out, 
I work with sponsees. I go to meetings. I do service work at my church. My wife and I are in therapy together. I'm in individual therapy. And he said, work, 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 work. And he, and then here's what, and I, I swear to God, this is, this is a true story. He's, we were standing outside of this meeting, and it was him and I. And he, he said, he endeared himself to me because he was a bar fighter like I was, and he was a criminal like I was. And he said, you have the body of a warrior, the soul of a poet. And I was like, oh. This guy, and he said, you have the heart of a fucking chicken. <laughs> Which was true. I was rolling around in bar, in bar floors terrified. Terrified. And I was terrified to tell you who I was, right? And so he said, this little cute umbrella, he's from Brooklyn. Colonel appreciate that. He, says, he said, this little cute umbrella, he said, he said, you are gonna, you're going to have to step outside of the comfort zone of this program. And I said, you mean not go to AA anymore, an SA, and just go to Al-Anon? He said, no. He said, God, you're so sick, kid. He goes, this, this shit's going to take years to me to tell you, you know. <laughs> he said, no. He said, you have got to define a personal relationship with the God of your understanding. He said, or one or two things is going to happen. And he was only 40 years sober at this time. So he really didn't know what he was talking about. He's 50 now, so you know, i got to give him some credit, you know. But he said, one of two things is going to happen. You're going to turn back into this program, and you're going to grab that book, and you're going to grab a hold of it. You're not going to believe it, because there's something in you calling you to go do something outside of here, because you have to define a, define a personal relationship with God. He said, and you're going to start shaking that book. He said, I've seen it a thousand times. You're going to be one of those old, angry, bitter guys whose sponsees love him, but who hates himself. He said, or you're going to go out there, and he said, you're going to define this relationship with God. And I said, and the, the brevity of that sank in. And nowhere in this were we talking about lust, bar fighting, or drinking. It wasn't even a part of it. Uh, this conversation didn't start because I was at a porn shop or was flirting with a woman, Right? It was because I, I lusted or I hungered for something more. And the first step stopped working for me. And he said, what is it, kid? He always calls me kid. And I said, I'm fucking terrified. What do I do with the terror? And I shit you not. He looked at me and he took his cigarette and it started. It went. And the rain came down. And he goes, feel it anyways. And he took his cigarette and he flipped it up into the rain. And he got in his car and drove off. And I'm standing there just. Like like Dan Aykroyd in Trading Places in that Santa suit, except for I was stone cold sober. And I realized for the first time in my life what I lusted after, why I lusted and why I drank. Because I was terrified of a personal relationship with a God of my understanding. It's in that big book and every freaking page, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, there is no question that they are guiding us towards God. Some relationship, I don't care what you call it. They take great care and go to great painstaking, laborious, tedious bullshit to spoon feed us the idea that possibly something outside of us may be the reason we're here. And I didn't get that shit. And there begat the last 10 years of my life, right? And I'll tell you, I thought I was powerless over lust. You want to talk about powerless? God... God is just hog-ass wild about me, and he fed me all along. Come on, kitty, kitty, kitty. And then he's, and I'm like, you know, oh, God, this is uncomfortable, and I'm getting my land legs. And then he says, you really want to know why you're here? And he stripped me of everything. There's nothing in me that's of, of a veil that's cloaked in my ego, nothing, right? And so about that time, I came into essay, and I got peace with essay again. And I just, and he said, Everything that comes out of your mouth is about the big book of AA or the 12 and 12 or some therapeutic journal. Actually, a therapist at the Meadows told me that. And he said, I want you to go home and I want you to go to one meeting a week. And I looked at this guy like a horse looks at bad fucking water. You know, I was like, what? And I went home and I talked to Barry, I talked to Bill, my sponsor in SA, and I talked to Addison, my uh, Al-Anon ACUAA sponsor. I said, this guy's batshit crazy. I'm just going to tell you what he told me. Every one of them said, that guy, he's dead on. He's dead on. I went to one meeting a week. I didn't know what to do with myself. Well, I'll tell you what I did with myself. I went out there and found out who I was. 
I started experiencing things outside of the program. I started going outside that umbrella, right? I started doing things. I started spending a lot of time by myself. Crazy shit. I'd go play pinball games with all these pimply-faced teenagers, and I'd go, well, this is stupid, but I'm, you know, take myself out on these dates, and I started to discover who I was and what I really liked. And, man, there ain't nothing sweeter than that. And I could have missed that had I not stayed sober, right? And so I made peace, and I made my mind up that in order for me to be sober in essay, I had to speak my truth. And here's the part I really want you to hear from me, I need to hear from myself, is that I can be who I am and have my experience because Barry said this. He said, I don't want to hear your opinions. It's all bullshit. He said, what's your living sober experience? And I'm telling you what my living sober experience is. Not to impress you. Not to, you know, show you my broken tooth and the evil can evil and all that. Although I did kick his ass. I want you all to remember that. <laughs> he may not have been in his prime, but he was evil can evil, right? <laughs> so what happened was um, when I started to get this relationship with God... Um, all of a sudden I had to start listening. And I started, I started to listen, and I would get these things, and I would go, Elliot, last week when you said that, that hurt my feelings, and I, wasn't uncom- I was really uncomfortable with it. And then I'd shut up. And he'd, go, he'd either go, well, that's bullshit, or he'd go, I'm sorry, or whatever. But I had to start speaking up for myself without these. And I'm telling you, I came out of that wound. I swear to God, I came out of that wound swinging. I swear to God, because I knew I was going to have to fight my whole life. I think, I don't know what happened, but that's what I did. I had to learn how to level people with people without leveling them, including an essay. I made an amend to Harvey. When you get enough sobriety, you can bust a guy in the chops under the demise of experience, strength, and hope. Do it all the time. And I started to get sick to my stomach. And Barry said, go make an amend to him. I said, I'm not making an amend to that bad. Uh-uh. I ain't going to do it, Right. He said, make an amendment or, or, or you need to find another sponsor. And I said, I'm afraid. He said, what are you afraid of? And I said, he's not going to hear it. And I'm going to get shamed. And he said, he cannot shame you. He cannot fear you. Go to him with an open heart. And he said, this is what I'm talking about. Well, I never went anywhere without a pistol. And I'm not talking about a gun. I'm talking about these, right? And I said, I want to apologize to you. And I said, I have subversively uh, busted your testicles um, in meetings and I'm sorry is there anything I can do to make this up to you and he read me the riot act for 20 solid minutes walked out of there and I never felt more like a man in my life because I owned my stuff didn't matter what he thought and he said you've never fully taken the first step and blah blah and boy did I want to come out and just (laughs) give it to him my sponsor said if you open your mouth after you make the amend you're going to have to go back, <laughs> right? And I've done enough of these. I ain't going back because they're not comfortable. I don't like pain, right? So and like, much like Barry and my other spot, Bill, you know, they would say, one day your word's going to mean something. One day you're going to believe in who you are. And I started to believe who I was. And I'm going to tell you this. So I started, I came back. I started coming. I never left essay. Kept coming, kept coming. And all of a sudden I started telling the truth. And I quit saying, I got this from Barry, where I heard this, I just say, this is what my experience is. And all of a sudden, man, these knuckleheads that were like me, up until this point, I always got these guys who were kind of soft, and um, some of them had same-sex issues, and that was never on my radar. And I never got that. Like, why would you come to an angry asshole to sponsor you if you grew up? And then I realized, well, they grew up with an angry asshole. And one of the things Harvey said to me is, I I was talking about rage, and he said, I want you to hear this. And I thought, oh, God, here it comes. And he said, I've never seen you rage or hurt anybody in this program in my however many years he's been here. And I thought, oh, God, he's right, you know. So I started getting these knuckleheads come into my life. I mean, the kind I love, you know, the Barry calls them the lunatic fringe. As he says, it's not those clear-eyed effers over on the west side of town, Marty, that have no, no problems. He goes, you come over here on with us on the east side of town where we got real problems and we talk about them, right? Well, those, 
So those guys started coming into my life one at a time, one at a time, one at a time. And so I started working with these guys, and then guys would come up, come up after me, and they'd have three, four, five years of sobriety, and they'd go, hey, uh, I heard you talking about this thing about being free, and I'm just kind of stagnant here. Not everybody. Not everybody's doing this or has this same. And I would openly tell them my experience about essay, and I'd openly tell them about how I had to go back and restore and reclaim that sexuality that was robbed from me, openly. I didn't, I didn't announce it in meetings, but I had to go back and talk to them about that. Man, all of a sudden, instead of it being a burden, I started loving these guys, man, like they were my own. And I got a gaggle of guys now, and they are batshit crazy. And they're the lunatic fringe, and half of them live down here, you know, and, and uh, they look good, but they're crazy as hell, and I love them, you know. And I'm sitting, so I'm sitting in a mall about two or three years ago, and I was selling these little rubber silly band things like they're made up of animals. They're like animal shapes and shit. It was just this craze. And I just got this wild hair one day. And I told my wife, I said, I'm going to sell that, sell that. And this guy said, you'll never get into the Green Hills Mall. And I said, well, just him saying that, I'm an addict. Well, now I'm going to get in that son of a bitch if I got to sell them in the parking lot. And so I'm in there and I had the best time. It was so like my wife said, you were born to do this shit. And I'm in there one Wednesday at 10 a.m. at my little little kiosk, you know, and I'm standing there, and uh, Jordan was wired like me, angry as shit. He's, he's three kiosks down, and we're looking at each other, you know, we're talking. And all of a sudden, this guy comes staggering, and he's just beat up emotionally. And I said, and I'd remembered him when he came in here, and he was one of the clear-eyed people down here in Williamson County. And he came in, and he said, he goes, what? Uh, he goes, dude, he goes, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm selling. selling. He goes, I could get those for you for third. I said, I don't want to talk about the silly bands. What are you doing? And he said, my wife's kicked me out of the house. He said, I've had an affair. He said, I can't stop flirting with women and getting into text sexting with them. And he said, I just got a treatment at the, at, uh, the bridge. I said, oh, fuck, this is great. I said, pull up a chair. I got all week, you know. <laughs> and so one by one, I started helping these guys and giving them what, I had, what I'd been given, right? And so I was talking with this guy one day, and he was going on and on about the lust, and this, is, this came out of me. I said, stop right there. I don't give two craps about your lust. I said, I want you to tell me what you're really feeling. Where do you feel shame, hurt, or fear? What is it? He said, well, I don't know. I said, well, you, you, why don't you go journal and then call me back? Because if you don't get to the root cause of that, you will act out again. He says, how do you know that? I said, you're talking to a drunk. I know. Well, you did. And I said, it's because I did the work. And I continue to. And I said, let me tell you what I'm afraid of today. And I'm going to tell you what my shame is. I said, I'm 40. I don't even know how old I was. I'm sitting at a silly bandstand in the Green Hills Mall having the time of my life selling some bullshit that's three times overpriced of what it even remotely should be. And I'm having a ball. And the shame on my shoulder says, what's wrong with you? That's the guy I am. And I'm standing there going, oh boy, what are these people going to say? I met country music star, met a gold medalist, Olympic skater, had the best time, I communicated with these people, and I just loved it. Boop. Uh-uh, what's going on? And he started to cry. And he said, dude, I don't know if I can get that on us. And I said, it's only taken me 22 and a half years, but I'm sure you'll get to it quicker than I did. <laughs> you know? And he called me back and he said, well, I'm... He goes, I'm ashamed. I'm afraid that if I don't look good at this institution, and I'm a, I feel shame about what those people will think about me. It's the clear-eyed thing, right? I said, I get that. Okay, now here's the next, the la- one of the, the last phase of it. So what do I do with that shame, right? So I, hopefully you get the thing with me that it's about telling you who I am, right? I don't have any qualms in that. My life's an open book, and those of you who know me probably know that. I don't know. If you don't, I've misrepresented myself. <laughs> I had a therapist. One of, she was, she's a renowned nationwide sex addiction therapist in town and founded the Sex Addiction Treatment Center out at, uh, on site. And she told me in a, meeting, in, a, in a counseling session one time, you are honest to a fault. 
therapist tells you, ooh, damn, you might want to hold back on that. <laughs> Remember the star second baseman for the San Quentin Quail? Well, you know, so I had to start pulling back. I started to have, I started to get, have some, some grace. You know, my wife calls this the more new and improved sensitive, Marty. <laughs> I don't know if it's improved or new, but it's definitely sensitive, right? And so what happened was is I started going, well, what? Well, this shame, I would tell you about it, and I would immediately get relief, and the lust was gone like that. Gone! There's no lust. I thought this is eureka. There was no fear, shame, or hurt anymore. I could talk about my anger all day long, but what I... what. Barry Sook said it, and he told me since my living sober experiences, I didn't drink over what I did, I drank over what I didn't do. I don't want you to know who I really am. Lust is a symptom of my disease, and it's a spiritual uh, disease that I suffer from, and the spiritual disease is, is my dependence is placed in the wrong place. My dependence is on me to protect myself. Remember the, the gun, the evil can evil? Who fucking gets in a fight with evil can evil, right? Nobody, you know, and I know y'all don't live like that out here, but we do up there, right? When I tell my story in the Northwest, people, well, they're just bonkers over it, right? Here they look at you like, damn, brother. <laughs> you know? So I started realizing that this voice that jumps up and says, man, you know, what are you doing here? Why are you, you know, you're missing your front tooth. This voice over here, I go, who am I? What's my purpose right now? And what's my living truth? And I just repeat it over and over and over, and this guy goes away. I called Jim and say, hey, and I don't remember the last time Jim and I had a call, but I called him because I was hurting over something. I said, i got to check this in, man. I'm really feeling shame. I don't remember what it was. It was either shame, fear, or hurt, because those are the three for me. And I said, I just want to tell you this. you know. And immediately it went, and then Jim talked about himself for a little bit, and then I got the subject back on me, which is where it should have been. <laughs> you know. And then Jim talked about him, and we hung up, and I, it was over. And I was getting out of my truck, and I was walking into my house, and it started creeping back in, and I just told that, uh, I just told that little kid inside, I got you, I'm going to protect you, and I ain't ever going anywhere. Affirmations, right? Okay, so that's my my peace and I want to tell you how grateful I am to know and it took me a long time to get to the root cause of my lust which is I don't want you to know the truth about me and what was that movie Russell Crowe was in when he played the guy with uh, a beautiful mind okay and this is the part I really don't want you to know because I don't want you all to think I'm cornball-y I'm, I, I'm that guy and I'm going to tell you what happened what, what it is when I was a little kid I got hurt Horribly, abused horribly. And my ego jumped in, and his sole job, my addict, is to go, I got you. That's his whole job. And he jumps in and goes, I got it. The problem is, is this 15 year old kid ends up, you know, in New Mexico with a midget truck driver and two Oriental prostitutes, you know? <laughs> That's where he ends up in a fifth of whiskey, a midget truck driver named Tripod, and that actually happened, right? <laughs> Okay. So this guy protected me. And what happened was is I can't live like a 15-year-old angry adolescent anymore. I can't. In no program do we take that ad- angry adolescent addict and put him in a cage and throw stones at him like we do in SA. There's guys that I meet in A that say, well, I'm going to go to a masturbation problem. They come to SA. They come and they run out the door and go, holy shit, y'all are too damn honest for us. You all don't know how honest and how effective this program is, right? It's also way, way deeper to core issue for me to tell you what I'm really afraid of and ashamed of. Sexual acting out, are you kidding me? You all laughed when I told you about the midget truck driver named Tripod, who, by the way, rest in peace, is no longer with us, right? It's really not, not that funny to talk about my sexual acting out. If I, and I don't have same-sex issues, but same-sex issues, bestiality, all those things horribly hard to do that and there's never more of a loving place to do that but in here I've never experienced that right so the angry adolescent protects and all of a sudden I started this relationship with this little kid my wife came home drove up in the front yard threw the front door open of my car threw my shit out in the lawn and said you cannot talk to me like that anymore 
She said, I, I'm in the process of divorce proceedings right now. And she called it the hillbilly breakup. And by the way, we had a home in West Nashville where the clear-eyed people are, right? She pulls up and throws my shit out. And, and uh, so what happened is I went to work on this rage of mine, this intensity. And she said, you are so intense. She goes, everything is about recovering. We're the recovering couple. And, blah, blah, blah. and she goes, I just want a garden. And I couldn't understand what the hell she was talking about. That's not intimacy. Intimacy is intensity and I love you, baby, you know. I loved you, you know, and her storming off down the street, come back, why? You know, she just wants a damn garden, man, you know. So I had to learn the less of me and more her, less of me, more her, less of me, more her, right? And in that process, I picked up this book, and this woman, it was called The Journey from Abandonment to Healing, and ironically enough, it was right... It was in my, at my mother's house. I was staying on a trip. I was working, and I opened up the nightstand by the bed, and there it was. It was the only book in the thing. And I took it, and this lady started talking about, you have to have a relationship with an inner child. Right and here I am from, I'm like, inner child, my ass. <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you, when I'm, when I'm saying this, when I'm saying I love you and I got you, I'm not talking to the 49-year-old Marty. I'm talking to that little kid. And I've done that for eight solid years, and that kid believes me today. He knows I got his back and he trusts me. The problem with it is, is I got this little kid in here. You ever seen them bumper stickers that says, my inner child needs a good spanking? Hmm. Anybody ever seen them? I pulled a guy over one time at a map going and said, I had to kick your ass. But, but This is stone cold sober. And, and he said, what are you talking about? And I said, you don't ever beat an inner child. I'm arguing with a guy about something that don't even fucking exist. <laughs> In the name of protection of experience, strength, and hope of the 12 steps of SAA and Al-Anon and ACOA, right? And these people are looking at me like I'm batshit crazy. My wife's just got her head in her hand going, what? I just want a garden, you know? Okay, so here's the part that I didn't know when I got in here is this little kid. I didn't know that this guy jumped in it. In this book, this lady said 146 ways to cite an outer child, which is the angry adolescent addict, right? And every one of them but two out of 146 I had. And she said the key to a lasting relationship with another human being is to out the outer child and let your little kids play. And I went to work on that with my wife. My wife will out my outer child and my kids will in a frickin' heartbeat. And I go, I don't know what you're talking about. And I experience strength and hope it and recovery it. And they just stand there and go, you know, then I own my shit and we move on, right? So what happened for me was, and this is just in the last 30 days that I started to do this piece for me. And this is strictly selfish, this next little piece, but it's really uh, where I'm at, okay? So my last rage attack was over something. My kids weren't cleaning the house, and I snapped, and their mother was gone. And they came home. My oldest son was packing his bags. He said... I don't know what's going to happen, he said, but I can't stay here anymore with him like that. And my wife texted me and said, please don't come home. This was 30 days ago, a week, a month ago yesterday, right? And so I went and I got in. My, my original rage sponsor had to fire me because he had a heart attack, and the doctor suggested he eliminate all the stressors in his life. <laughs> <laughs> He told me I was about eight on the list, but I'm pretty damn sure I was one or two, <laughs> right? And, uh, and I have to say this, too, with regards to rage. Mark, some of you guys know Mark N. Uh, he's like a brother to me. He and I started a Rageaholics Anonymous meeting, and the group disbanded because Mark and I got into a fight in the meeting. <laughs> so you get a little bit of the ilk of where I come from, right? So I went to my sponsor. I got a new rage sponsor. And this guy is one of those guys that doesn't mind telling me what to do, and I need it. We sat down, and I was at that turning point, you know, incomprehensible demoralization. I'm not, it's not the father I want to be. It's not the husband I want to be. There's a little part in the big book, and it says all alcoholics have, share in, or uh, go through grave remorse make grand reclamations, and it's not reclamations, I can't remember the word is, but it basically insinuates where you say, we're never going to do this again. And the last part is the best part. It says, few make a decision. Right? So when I was talking about identifying lust, I'd already made the decision that I, I, I didn't think I could do it again. 
And there was barely more of me that thought I couldn't do it again than there was that thought I still could. And with this thing, with this lust, I laid down that gun. I don't carry a gun anymore. And I'm going to tell you what's happened. This is, I'm in process. I don't have all my shit together, okay? This will never end for me. Never. Thank God for that. There is a way out for me. And I, here I thought it was about breasts and body parts and went. It got nothing to do with that, man, right? So just like I withdrew from lust, I'm withdrawing from rage. And every time I'm at dis-ease or uncomfortable, I have to call my sponsor. And he said, get two people below me you can call right in a row. And I couldn't get those, one of those three guys. And I called Jim. I don't know how long that was. And I talk about what it is that I'm afraid of. And every day I get on my knees, and just like my original contract got around lust, I said, God, please remove my hunger to rage today and remove my misbelief that I am a victim or I'm being victimized. My perception of what you're doing to me is immediate a threat and a danger. That's how skewed my vision was. I didn't come out of the wound like that. My dad was a, a living threat to me. But a guy with a bumper sticker that says, my inner child needs a good spanking, and I view that as a fucking threat. You know how sick that is, right? For the past 11 days, I have cried every single day. And every single day I've cried has nothing to do with any of my A and B relationships. And I'm going to end because I'm going to tell you the story of what's happened to me with this angry adolescent. You remember? The guy that ended up in New Mexico, Right? When I was growing up, all I've ever done in this room is cage that guy and said, look at him. There he is. I've never loved him. I love that little kid that got hurt. I love the 49-year-old Marty. I'm a hell of a lot of fun, and I like the guy I am today. Okay? What I never did was learn how to love that kid. Remember I was talking about Russell Crowe's got those three people? I don't want to tell you all this, but this is my living truth. It's my own, The only thing I got is my own experience. So... <sighs> Um, we've taken about six bows to the hole of my sh- our family ship, and they've been very painful. Started with this, six thousand dollars, right? I mean, I, that's probably nothing to a lot of you guys down here in Redwood. Yeah. I gotta stop making those digs. I'm sorry. Um, I will. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, um, and then my son has a has a bill we gotta pay. And it's not just the financial, it's emotional. My son said a really wildly inappropriate comment at school. We had to parent him through that. My older son is flunking in English class. The ladies, he's a freshman in high school. She's asking him to operate at a senior in college. And I want to go down there and fight that. My wife says, I'm a school teacher. Do not do that. It will be miserable for him the rest of the year. I said, not if I'm in there, it ain't. Right? I'm at dis-ease. Call my sponsor and he goes, Turn that shit over to your wife. And I'm like, she's going to fuck it all. (laughs) (laughs) So my wife and I met the day after my rage attack at a McDonald's, and my wife was weary. And I said, here's the four things that I'd like to surrender to you. The kids' grades. This is a big one for me. The kids' sports. You guys, all you guys, a lot of you guys know my history. I've been kicked out of every court field you can imagine from Williamson County to Davidson (laughs) County. Under the demise of principled truth, which it was. My technique's off, right? Chores and big projects around the house all have to go through my wife. And I said, if you would be willing to do that, I will do anything it takes to pick up your slack. And the sadness and the guilt I felt, because my whole deal was I was going to do it different than my old man. Truth is, is, I've done a lot like him some days. I had to surrender it to my wife. A week ago, Friday, we get a call from my son's basketball coach. I want to just give you this. This is the last story I'm going to tell. My son got cut from the basketball team in the seventh grade. <coughs> no big deal. He, 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 it was a seventh, eighth grade team. Eighth grade team, he went in. He got cut, and he came home. And my, son's, my oldest son is reserved. He's like his mother. And he, he, when he cries, he goes, what's a salty discharge coming from my eyes, you know? <laughs> and... Uh, and he was crying in the kitchen. And the guys that I ran with in Montana, all of us had angry, alcoholic, raging fathers. Every single one of us. 
Two of them are head football coaches right now, top 25 football programs, and they got there because of the toughness that I've acted out out there. They're no different than I am. He carries the same shame. I watch him on them sidelines, and that the and he gets away with it. And I, I'm getting, I'm getting arrested at McDonald's because the guy's got an inner child sticker on his thing. Where's the fairness in that, right? He's winning championships, making 3.6 million a year. I hope he never hears the story. Anyways, those guys became my family. That became my gang, and there was a pecking order. And how good you were on the football field was where you lined up on that thing, and how tough you were, which was the most important thing. We would go into bars, and, and they would, uh, one of the guys I'm talking about, they'd start a fight. And there were three guys that were the toughest kids I still to this day have ever met, and they'd start. And he'd, it was like a wolf pack. We'd all sit there and watch. And then all of a sudden, somebody else would jump in, somebody else. And then my, I was about, I'd like to say I was number six. The truth is, I was somewhere between eight and ten, depending on how much I had to drink. Then I'd jump in, Okay. Sports saved my life, and that gaggle became my gang. And I remember sitting in the therapy office, and the guy said, you were in a gang? I said, we weren't in a gang. And this is going to sound racist, but I grew up in Montana. The white population was like 99.3, and all I understood gang to be was black guys. I said, we were all white. And I said, we didn't have any of that shit and the knives and guns. We fought like men. <laughs> and that guy went down, and he told me the top 15 characteristics of children who enter gangs. I had 14 of them. It was my family. So my son gets cut from basketball, right? And we, he had his feelings around it, and it was horrible for me. Who's going to protect him? My dad didn't protect me. Those guys in that gang protected me. But it's not his life. I called those three men I was telling you about, and I said, what do I do? And they said, you let him go. It's a different world today. You can't fight your way to peace. You cannot fight your way to peace. I'm like, what the... Who is this? You know, the Saturday he's, you know. Anyways, so fast forward a week ago Friday, I get a call from my son. He's playing. My son worked his ass off last summer. He got up at 7 o'clock and rode his little bike down to the community center in Nashville, and he'd work out and practice, and he'd play against. I said, you got to play against guys that are better than you so you get better. And he'd come home, and he said, oh, Pop, he goes, you know, you're right, and all that. And, and he'd come to my adult old man basketball league and play, and he worked his ass off. Friday, I get a co- call from his coach, and he said, Marty, this is Coach Gibbons. He said, uh, Cade's uh, went up for a layup, and I was like, praise, praise the Lord, he's getting the ball, you know, the ego. And he said, he, he got hit really hard, and he said, I think he needs to go to the hospital. That was Friday. Tryouts for the freshman basketball team started Monday. He broke his wrist in half. And we're sitting in St. Thomas. And I got up and I closed the doors. And I, he was sitting there and he just starts crying. And he goes, I didn't say, well, we'll get you some tissue. Because I've sat in this myself. And I looked at him and I said, son, I said, can you tell me what's going on? He said, I don't want to be here. Crying. I knew what he meant, right? Stepped outside the room to collect myself. And uh, I said, do you want anything? He said, No. And I'm standing there, and my wife's gay friend, Ed, from Alan, comes walking down the hall and says, I heard you all were here. And he hugs me, a gay man that I've known for 22 years. I come from Montana. I'm standing there, and he looked at me, and he goes, Dude, would you ever have thought that you'd be standing outside your son's room in an emergency room with your wife's best gay friend hugging you in a leather coat, earrings, and a, I don't know what gay men wear that thing they throw around. And, <laughs> and he said... I said, no. And he sat there with me, man, and he was walking out. And the next day he sent a, me- a little email and he said, you're such a good dad. He said, you were there. And he said, and you were so calm. And I said, calm? I had this, these tears. I had this fucking gunfight going off in here. And I took my son home and we went into the surgeon Monday. And she said, we're going to have to operate on it. She said, I could numb him here and do it here, but he'd fight back. I said, I'll, I'll take care of that. Is it cheaper? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I noticed all the men laugh. My wife would step over $2,000 to collect her baby to, to spend 20, you know, but, and that's a good balance for us. She's my yin to my yang. I'm the one asking questions. We really need that, 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 that Tylenol. <laughs> You'll be all right, you know. And so Monday we walked in, and my son walked into school, and he had his hand in the cast, and he went into the to the uh, coach, and 
and coach asked him what happened and, and he told, talked to him and I said, Kate, I said, why don't you go on to classes? I want to talk to Coach Gibbons. And I can let you in and let you in. I have. I've let a lot of you guys in. You've seen my heart. A, B relationships. And here's a fucking coach. Remember the sports thing I was telling you about and the, how important and tough that was? And this guy's no different. He stood up and he said, I'm really sorry. He said, I want to tell you something. He said, that's the toughest kid I've ever met. He said, and I've never, never encouraged fist fighting my, with my kids, only between themselves, but not outside the home. <laughs> and he said, he's also the most kindest, gracious kid I've ever met. And I started to fucking cry, and I said, I want to tell you something. I said, some of this was a lie. But I said, because uh, <laughs> I'm I, I, I still not ready to be 100% vulnerable. I was crying, and I said, I just want to, I said, I'm sorry. I said, I want to tell you this. I said, the kid's heart's broken. I said, he worked his ass off. And I said, you don't know him shit. I said, but he's, because he said, that's got to be tough with your kid. And I said, it's not the broken wrist, it's his heart. I said, I watched him get up and take that workout plan you had at 7 o'clock every day. My kid didn't do it every day, but it sounded good. (laughs) And I said, and I want to tell you something. I said, what he said was, I'll never, I'm never going to get to play for Coach Givens and those guys. He didn't say that, but I knew that's what he was feeling, right? And I'm crying in front of a grown fucking man who's a coach and all that history. And he looked at me and he goes, I know where he gets it now, right? And here's where I got to with this thing. I can no longer solicit who loves me. I've been doing that my whole life with this. And I ain't doing it anymore. It took me 28 years to let people love me, my A-B relationships. I had to cultivate those relationships with you people. You are my A-B relationships. Every one of you. No, that's a lie. The ones that I know that I've had the opportunity to open my heart up to. I've never trusted outside these rooms, and I'm 49 years old. And every day since God broke my family down, he's brought that into my life. And I have stepped out. A, a woman at McDonald's is heavyset black gal. I love her. and She loves me. And we're always joking around. I wouldn't have sex with that one. Well, <laughs> I, I forget. <laughs> I forget who the crowd is. <laughs> I don't have lust after this woman. I walked in and she said she got into a terrible car wreck and one of you knuckleheads helped her out as an attorney. She's broke. I go, what are you doing? She goes, I don't do anything. I don't have any money. My family, I give her money. We love her. She loves my kids. She said, God, I miss you. How are you doing? I said, I'm doing good. She came over and gave me a hug and I started fucking crying at McDonald's. You see, I started crying and there's all these construction guys that are working demolition down there and I'm thinking, holy shit, it's getting ready to go down, you know? (laughs) And I'm crying. got my car and I drove home and I thought Jesus man and I thought it was about breasts it ain't you know I'm slowly becoming the man I wanted to be today you know and having feelings and that has happened to me every day this is the 11th day that has happened where somebody who's not an AB relationship because my biggest fear was I don't trust you out there because nobody gets out of this world without a broken front tooth nobody And I had more than my fair share of that shit. And it was time for me to get off of that and put that fucking pistol down and trust that even if I got hurt, I'd be okay. And you know why I'm okay today? Because I got a power greater than myself that I can go to. And I've got relationships with you people that if I'm hurt, shame, or in fear, that you can help me with. I thought it was about lust. And look what I've been given because of that. I don't know, I feel like I'm a preacher in a fucking preacher thing in a church, but is that 140? Anyways, that's it. That's my story. That's, that is my getting to the root cause of lust. It's no different. I'm getting to the root cause of my rage, which is it don't matter how many times I got, I, I got my ass kicked in this world emotionally. I don't remember half of the physical ones, but emotionally and spiritually, I still got to go out there. And here's the bigger key. I still got to open my heart up. I thought it was about anger. It wasn't. It was about the inability to trust in God and where is my dependence placed today. And it's no different with my rage than it was than it is with lust. Where's my dependence? And God had to show up for me in skin form in order for me to get sober. 
Okay, and I'm going to close on this. David, who's a member of the Brentwood Franklin group, and yes, his eyes are very clear. I was driving home on a, driving Old Hickory Boulevard to pick my son up from baseball, and I saw on a church sign it said the four A's, anger, addiction, agreement, and there was one other one I thought, anger. Called my sponsor and said, I'm going to go investigate, and then I'm going to have contempt because it's at a church. And I walked in. And I loved this thing. There was, there was things that weren't my own living personal experience. It was a little dogmatic, but it didn't hurt. I wasn't offended. I walk in the last day. I come home from Montana. I walk in the last day, and it's on, it's on addiction, and it's on sexual addiction and pornography. I walk in, and David's in there. And David's kind of a sheepish guy, you know, kind of. And I walked in, and he made eye contact, and I said, well, I, didn't, I didn't know what the protocol was in the church. You know, do you, do you let guys know that you're in a, hey, you know. And I walked in, and I sat down, and he walked up to me, and he, after the thing, and he said, and he gave me a hug, and we were talking, and he said the most profound thing. And this is the crux of what I was hopefully got across today. That's my own experience. He said, I did this, tried to do, fix this thing like this for 40 eight years and he said it's only when I did this that I was really able to get sober and that's been that's my truth if I don't do this I don't really have to stand a chance you know and I had to grin and bear it through the shame then I had to grin and bear it through loving myself and then now I'm having to grin and bear it to surrender to God of my understanding and all through that process I come to know who I am and in a sense I get to know who God is because that's the reason I'm here Right to go out and then to help others. I don't know if I helped them construction workers standing with my missing front tooth and a sleeveless shirt because I was painting that day and cried like a baby and ordered my own sweet iced tea and I said, "Give me a Big Mac," just so I wouldn't sound like a can- I wouldn't sound like a candy ass. And I was eating it. God does. Give me another one, you know. But all that all that process had to occur. So that's it for me. I guess that's it. All right. Thank you. All right.